Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. As we move into this this morning's message, uh, we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to end up back in the book of Judges um, to understand this character. But, but I thought this is a great way to wrap up the series because I think the guy we're talking about this morning is a lot like us. Uh, if you've ever felt disconnected, if you ever kind of wondered, does God still love me? Anybody else or is it just me? I, I'm the only one. Does God still love me? Thanks, Jackie. Anyone else? I mean, it's like, does God still love me? I feel displaced. I feel isolated. I feel alone. I feel like God can never use my past. He can't use me for who I am. And, and, and we see a lot of that in this guy. His name is Jephthah. Uh, probably most of you are not familiar with the story of Jephthah, or if you follow along with our small group study guide, you have read the story of Jephthah this week and you thought, this is just weird, right? I mean, just the, it's amazing the way God unpacks stuff. Uh, I've had people obviously this week have been reading the story of Jephthah, and I had multiple questions even before the first service this morning. They're like, so what about this, and what about that, and what about that? There's a lot there, and I'll just tell you right now, we're not going to get to all of that. Uh, there's four quick summaries that I think uh, we see in Jephthah's life that kind of draw the net on this idea of how do we risk it all? How do we live by faith in such a way that we, we risk it all, we lay it down for Christ? And so I think this will simply kind of draw that together. As we've looked at the book of Hebrews, we realize it's really about faith. It's about trusting God for who He is, that God is greater than all these other things. And we pressed into Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11 begins with a definition of faith. So let me just look at that as we begin. Hebrews 11, the definition of faith at the offer places two lines in parallel with one another. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, or your, your translation may say evidence of things not seen. So he places these two lines in parable, assurance of things hoped for, conviction or evidence of things not seen. And when you take the word assurance, that, that refers to the essence or the substance of something that stands up under as a foundation or support. Uh, and the word conviction that's translated there is the, uh, and the Greek term translated evidence or conviction in secular Greek would have referred to a test or a trial to prove something. So when we take that together, the definition not only points to the state of faith, which is believing, but also to the activity of faith, which is being faithful. And we do this because of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this series has been all about faith. How do we take these steps of faith one at a time to live for Jesus in a way that is well-pleasing? We've gone back several times to verse 6, which simply says, and without faith it is impossible to please Him, speaking of God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him, right? So this faith is lived out in a, in a, in a way of, uh, of humbleness, of an attitude of dependence and gratefulness in Jesus, and it works it out in those three ways, right? Draw near to God believe that He exists, that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So the person of faith then uh, takes God at His word, right? W without questioning, without quarreling, he trusts God by faith. A am I the only one that has questioned God? No. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Three of us in the room. 
Uh, we've never questioned God. We just walk by, rapid, you know, just radical faith. Uh, anybody ever quarrel with God? You know, but, but the more I've grown in Christ, my questioning becomes less, my quarreling becomes less because I begin to, to see the evidence, the faithfulness, the assurance, the conviction as I walk with Him. So, so why does He do this? Why, why, why the emphasis, right, to live by faith? Why is He driving us to this? Why show these great characters of faith all through chapter 11? Well, because immediately after chapter 11, you have chapter 12, thank you, the very first verse, right? So this is his continued thought. Remember, the writer of the letter did not write the chapters. He wrote the letter, right? So immediately after these beautiful, great stories of faith, his very next phrase is, therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, because of all these great testimonies of faith, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and then he gives us some instruction, let us do this, let us lay aside every weight, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. So we're, we're letting us lay aside, we're letting us run with endurance, we're looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, right? In other words, we do all this stuff, we live by faith, why? So that we will be well-pleasing to God. In order to do that, we lay aside. We run with perseverance. We look to Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 11, I want to look at a character that's listed there. Look at the verse 32 with me for just a moment. Hebrews 11 verse 32, and as he's writing, he's listing all these great characters. We've heard some great messages. We've had some guests in. Pastor Scott it really unpacked Moses and that life. And, and so in verse 32, he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong um, out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight." Four names that he throws there right together, right? Gideon, Barak, uh, Samson, Jephthah, these all four were judges. And, and so to unpack that, because this morning we're going to look at this name, Jephthah. How many of you know the story of Jephthah? Not, not your regular Sunday school story. Of course, Micah does over here. Of course, he does. But, but you know, he's not your regular Sunday school character, uh, we probably haven't heard a lot of him, but to understand the story of Jephthah, we have to understand the story of Judges. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, turn back with me to the Old Testament, uh, to the book of Judges. And as we begin to unpack this story of, of Jephthah, it's important to understand a couple of things really about the history of the people at this point in time. Um, because after years of wandering, you kind of know the story, right? God rescues the nation of Israel from bondage in Egypt, and He takes them, and right on the edge of the Red Sea, He, he parts the Red Sea, and they pass through. And then the people are disobedient, and they end up wandering in the wilderness for what? How long? 40 years they're wandering around the wilderness. Because none of this generation is going to enter the promised land. God delivered them from Egypt with the intent of going directly into the promised land. But out of disobedience, right, God didn't provide that immediately. I know that story. 
right? Sometimes my rebellion against God, I'm not always enjoying what God intends for me to because of my rebellion. And so, uh, so here we have it. After years of wandering, God is giving them the land. Moses is gone. Joshua takes over as the leader, and he leads them into the promised land, and they took over the land. And when they did, they had no king. They had no leader at that point in time. They were a theocracy. In other words, they were simply dependent and following God. But then they wandered away from him. And, and it's interesting, when you read the Old Testament, read the book of Deuteronomy, read the book of Numbers, you see God telling them, hey, when I give you the land, don't forget what I've done. When you take over the land, uh, don't, don't just party up with everybody that's there and, and begin to worship these false gods. Stay true to me. And yet, what did they do? They got in, they did all the stuff that God asked them not to do. Anybody else? Man. It sounds like my life. It sounds like my, my biography written out here. So Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, listen to what he says. He says, when Joshua dismissed the people, now in other words, Joshua takes them across the Jordan and he's going to release them, right, into the promised land. And, and God had given clear instruction to the 12 tribes of Israel, here's your allotment of land. And, and so everyone was going to their allotted area. And so he dismissed the people of Israel. Uh, they went each to his inheritance. This was the land that God gave them to take possession of the land. Verse 7, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. That's a great phrase. In other words, they took over the promised land, all the, the land that God had promised them, and all through the life of Joshua, the people followed the Lord. And, there's a big and right there, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. In other words, this group of leaders that took them in, the people were faithful to God through their lives. But then a problem came up. Because see, although Israel inherited the land, this land of promise, they repeatedly disregarded their covenant with God. Uh, there's a map up here. I don't know if they threw it up there, but, but you can see this was the allotment of the land that God promised the nation of Israel. And you can see the different colors that are there, all the different tribes, right? From Ephraim to Dan to Gad to Manasseh to Naphtali to Zebulun to Asher, all the way down here to, to Simeon that was part of Judah down there. And specifically down to the, to the southeast side, you'll see Moab and Edom right there. There was some conflict there. Rahab dealt with that. That was part of the conquering, and, and they wouldn't let them pass through. And so, uh, it's interesting because Jephthah refers to this. Jephthah knows this history as we press into it. Right above Moab is the Arnon River, and as you go northward up to the Jabbok River, that's the area that Jephthah is dealing with. Because he is part of this group. Uh, if, you, if you go up to the top right where it says East Manasseh, this area became known as Gilead. It was just sort of a tribal area, but it was part of the tribes that were there. So he is up in Manasseh, but he's dealing with this whole area, and we'll see another picture in a little bit how it began to look during the period of the judges. So this is what we're talking about. The people of Israel go in, they take over the promised land. This is the land that God gave them. This is all the conquest. This is the conquering. We saw this throughout the book of Joshua. And so there's two phrases that, that become regular throughout the book of Judges, because as the people settled into this land, they wandered from God. They began to dishonor the covenant. They began to walk away from God. Judges chapter 2, as we continue on in verse 10, it says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. In other words, uh, Joshua's generation and all those elders, they died. 
And so then it says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You will hear that phrase over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. Verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. The very thing God said, don't do it. (laughs) You're going to go into this land. It's a pagan land. Don't follow the pagan gods. Stay with me, right? The one true God. I'm delivering this land to you by promise. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. This is the story. There were, there were two common phrases. One we see right there, and again, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. The other phrase that you see regularly throughout the book of Judges is this, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Kind of sounds like the 21st century, doesn't it? Again, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. In his own eyes. Instead of staying true to Jehovah God, walking in faithfulness to his word, we want to do our own thing. And so it's during this period, there's this cycle that takes place. The nation of Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. God allows them to be conquered or oppressed. They, they finally, after years and years, begin to cry out to God. God then sends a deliverer or a judge to free them and bring them back to Christ. And yet the book finishes, Gen- uh, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, finishes with this verse, and it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a cycle, again, of rebellion and renewal. Rebellion, conquer, oppression, cry out to God, restoration. This was the process And so the book of Judges is all about these rebellious people during this period of time where God would raise up a military or a civic leader uh, that would point them back to Christ and deliver them from their oppressors. Now, these judges were not what what we would think of in terms of a judge. They were not arbiters of legal case uh, as we think about it in this day and age. Uh, They were really just spirit-empowered leaders that God would raise up. Uh, to to lead them and to to, uh, really bring about justice to the oppressed. Oftentimes through through the book, we will see not just that someone judged Israel or led them, but it may say that they led them or they saved them or that they delivered them because that's what God was doing. He was using ordinary people with great stories of faith to bring about revival, bringing people back to God. And so this morning we look at this judge, his name is Jephthah. Jephthah is a fascinating story, and the more I I read Jephthah over the last few weeks, the more I thought, I wish Pastor Scott were preaching this passage. Because it gets kind of messy, it gets kind of ugly, it gets a little bit dirty. But yet in so many ways I so understand where Jephthah is, and in so many ways I feel like him. And so I want to just unpack this a little bit. And instead of just reading the 40 verses that are right there in chapter 11, let me just tell you, uh, chapter 11 is all about Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites. Chapter 12, for the first part of chapter 12, is about his victory over the Ephraimites. Really just a cool story. And so when you're looking at that big of a passage and a character, you can't just pick everything apart. If, If I were just picking out one verse or two or three or five verses, but when I'm looking at 50 or 60 verses, it's hard to kind of look at that and get it done in the, on the short three hours that we have this morning. Um, so what I want to do is just 
kind of give you a summary. If I were to break down Judges chapter 11, here's my summary. Are you ready? Uh, it begins, verses 1 through 3, Jephthah is the outcast. And I want to press into this just for a moment to help us understand who this guy really is. He's an outcast. Chapter 11, verse 1 tells us that he's a, um, he's a mighty man of war. He's a, a man of mighty valor. But it also tells us that he's an Ill illegitimate child, that he's got these half-brothers, right, um, that, that he obviously just sort of grew up in a home that was probably a little hostile. There was probably some hostility, some anger, some hatred, uh, because later when his father passes away, uh, the, the other brothers run him out. And so now all of a sudden he is outside God's land of promise, his land of provision, and he moves off about 80 miles away. If, if we went back to the map, up to the upper right corner to the northeast, he, he then began to reside in a little town called Tob. And, and it really kind of became a hoodlum. He was kind of a rebel. He was kind of a, a bad dude. If they had motorcycles back then, he was like probably riding around. He had a gang. Um, it, it actually tells us in verse 3 that, that he became the leader of this band of crazy guys, right? Uh, it's interesting, when I, when I looked at some different translation, most translation will say the, he, that he became the ringleader of a bunch of worthless fellows. Uh, I love one translation says they were adventurers. The NIV says they were a gang of scoundrels. New Living Translation says they were a band of worthless rebels, uh, but he became the ringleader of this group. And we don't see it in Scripture, but, but some commentators believe that in, in Hebrew tradition, Jephthah became known as this bad dude. He kind of had this reputation, but he was kicked out. Now, I want to pause for just a moment right here because I know his feeling. I kind of know what Jephthah felt like. I've had moments, and I'm going to just be honest, and because some of you may kind of relate, you may kind of go, hey, Pastor Dave, man, I understand. I know that feeling. I've had honest moments in my walk and my relationship with Jesus when I have gone to God in brokenness, and I said, God, I love you. I want to serve you with my whole heart, but I don't care for your people. You know what I'm talking about? God, I love you. I dearly love you. You are my redeemer. You're my savior. I've surrendered my life to you. But God, your, your people kind of irritate me. Uh, Chuck Colson was the first one that I ever heard say this out loud. But he, he said, man, ministry wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for all the people. And, and I've come to realize that in 35 plus years of, of ministry and walking with Jesus and, and trying to serve the body of Christ, that God, there are times I deeply love you this is great, this is tough. But I've also understood as I've grown in deep relationship with God that I have to love the things that God loves and God deeply loves his church. As broken as it is and as messy it is, as it is, I'm commanded to love that. And most of the time that's me really getting right with God and living in grace with others. But, but I couldn't read this story without thinking of my friend Chuck. Chuck was a pastor friend of mine from a number of years ago, and Chuck and his wife, Chuck's brother-in-law, her brother, they'd been praying for her. I don't recall his name, but I remember the story so vividly, and Chuck, they would just pray for him. For years, they were praying for his brother-in-law. And finally, one day, in a very broken situation, his brother-in-law called him, and Chuck took a phone call, and it was his brother-in-law, and he was in jail. He was in a holding cell. 
And he'd come to the place where he was just giving up. He said, I know you've talked to me about this Jesus and all that. And if he can really change my life the way he changed yours, I want to know him. And over the phone, Chuck got to lead his brother-in-law to Jesus. They were living in different states, and so he connected him with a pastor friend that he knew in the area, and sure enough, that Sunday morning, uh, his brother-in-law walked the aisle of a church during the invitation and made his profession of faith in Jesus public. He said, I'm identifying with Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. Uh, I want to be part of this family. I want to grow with this family to be the man that God called me to be. And that night, Sunday night service, uh, he was baptized. And so he got up in the baptistry of that little church, and, and the, the hallway for the baptistry was behind the sanctuary. And, and as he came out of the baptistry and he's walking down the hall, what two men down the hall didn't realize is he's walking down the hall. They were right around the corner, and this young man, as he's walking down the hall, having given his life to Christ, made a public profession of faith, he comes toward the end, and he hears these two men from the church talking. And, and they made a comment that basically said, we have to be careful that we don't let too many like that in our church. And he came to the end of the hall, and he had a choice. Because as he walked down the hall to the left, he could have turned and gone back into the sanctuary and been loved by a group of people who could nurture him and lead him to intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, or he could turn to the right and go out the back door. Is there any guess what he did? And Chuck's brother-in-law walked out the back door of that church. And to this day, I don't know if he ever returned. Does that mean he doesn't, he's not loved by God? No. He, he's deeply loved by God, but he's in Tobe. He's been rejected by the body of Christ. And I can't imagine how many times in our culture we turn people away because we expect God to clean the fish before we catch him. Instead of simply going, God, you bring us who you want, and we're going to love by grace, and we're going to love by mercy, and it's going to get messy, and it's going to get stinky, and it's going to be difficult, but God, by your grace, we're going to do all we can to walk in faithfulness. So I want to speak to you this morning because you may be, as I pause this outline for a moment, you may be living in Tobe this morning. Whether you're in the room, whether you're attending online, maybe you're online because the church has offended you. And God is speaking to your heart right now. The church has burned you. They've rejected you. They've, they've thrown you out. Maybe you're here physically, but in your heart, your mind, your emotions, you're completely disconnected this morning. I want to invite you to return. And I want to publicly apologize on behalf of Jesus Christ for the way his church may have treated you. Because that's exactly what Jephthah's dealing with. He's outside the promised land because he was rejected. He was thrown out at no fault of his own. His, his birth, he had no control over his birth. But they rejected him. And so here he is 80 miles away outside God's promised land. And there he resides. So Jephthah's an outcast. He's a rebel, kind of a bad dude. But then from verses 4 to 11, we see Jephthah recruited. He's, he's recruited by the, the elders of Gideon. And then we see Jephthah's history lesson. Because as he confronts the king of, of Ammon, who's come against them, he basically gives them this beautiful history lesson. He knows the mercies of God. He's holding fast to the mercies of God, to the blessings of God, to the provision of God, because he knew that God had provided this land for them. And so he simply gives the king a history lesson. 
But then we see the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. And in one verse, in verse 29, we see the Spirit of the Lord come upon him. But then in verses 30 and 31, he makes a bad deal with God. He makes a bad vow. He makes a vow that he never should have made. And there's, a, there's a, man, we could, spend, we could spend weeks talking about this vow and what happened. But, but you know what? In so many ways, I feel exactly like Jephthah because I think I've made deals with God through my lifetime. God, if you, if you, God, please, if you will only get me out of this, I will do this. And I don't. God, if you will only help me pass this test that I never studied for, right? I will become a missionary. I mean, we, we make deals with God all the time. And so when I'm reading Jephthah's story, I'm like, I'm Jephthah. I, that's me. He makes a vow. And let me touch on it in just a moment. But, but then we see Jephthah's victory. After the, delivering this big, he's trying to be an ambassador. He's trying to be smooth with this king and not go to war, but the, the king's pushing him. And we're going to read that text in just a moment. But then in two verses, 32, 33, we see this incredible victory that God delivers to him. And there's, there's so much more. I mean, the verses are, are really kind of a summary of all that took place, but, but we see this. And so I'm thinking of the writer of, of the letter of Hebrews, and I'm thinking about the reader, and I'm thinking all this stuff that they would have known about Jephthah. And it's interesting because from verse 34 through 40, that's a pretty good chunk of the text, six verses, seven verses that, that deal with his vow played out. And if you've read the text, you realize that what Jephthah did is he said, God, if you would deliver me this victory, I will give you the first thing that comes out of my home as a burnt offering to you. And he comes home to what? To his daughter. His daughter walks out the front door. And commentators have different opinions as to why they, they believe he did offer her up and why he didn't. And well, when you read some of the up, you know, leading up to all this, and some of them were really buying into the pagan nation and uh, worshiping all these other gods, but I, I don't see that in Jephthah's life. I see Jephthah trusting the one true God. So just, I will send you some of my thoughts on this if you want to press into it, but I do not believe that he killed his daughter. It's contrary to God's command, to his moral code. It was directly against God's command. If he had done that, he would have had to go to one of the sanctuary areas, to one of the tabernacles, and one of the Levitical priests would have said, what are you doing? Uh, under Jewish tradition, he could have redeemed his daughter for a price. He, he is now a, a leader of all Gilead. He would have had the wealth. People would have pitched in and said, you can't do that. That's against God's moral code. And you can't do that. And he could have redeemed her for a price. So I believe what he did is he honored God's vow and allowed her to live a life of, of virginity to serve the Lord. Uh, there's a lot of things we could get into the phrasing that's, that's used in one of the Hebrew words, wa, which is, uh, could be interpreted a little bit different. But, but truly, I believe that he did not sacrifice her as a burnt offering. I'll, I'll talk to you more about that if you want to meet and talk. But I do want to share, as we, as we look at this, as we close this series and wrap it up, I see four things in Jephthah's life um, that are kind of a, a summary, that when we live by faith, when we risk it all, that's the series, as we risk it all by faith, one, I want you to see that we take childlike steps of obedience. We take childlike steps of obedience. I love when new believers come to faith in Jesus Christ because they're not smart enough to not take God at his word, right? New believers are just, man, they're like all in. If God says do it, let's just go do it. 
But some of us, the, the more mature we become in our walk with Christ, we, 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 we're not quite so quick to take God at His Word. But, but when I look at Jephthah, here, here it is. Uh, let's pick it up in, in Judges 11, beginning in verse 5. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. In other words, we have an army, we don't have a leader. And they needed this leader. And they looked at, at Jephthah and his reputation as this, this guy, this rebel, uh, he'd be a great leader. Now, what we don't see in the text, we don't see that they, the elders had a great prayer meeting seeking God's wisdom. They were looking for a guy. And so they went after Jephthah. But, but verse 7, but Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? One translation never says, um, hey, nevertheless, right? And the elders of Gilead said to, to Jephthah, hey, man, that's why we turn to you now. Almost, I read this, and the more I read it, I, I kind of started laughing because I'm like, oh, man, you didn't take me serious on that, did you? Yeah, I know we ran you out and all that, but eh, no, but, but that's why we're here now. We want to make things right. And so they made him a deal, said, if you come and do this, if you lead us into battle, that, then we will make you the leader over all of Gilead. Verse 8, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that's why we turn to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites. And be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, and I love this because look how he refers to the Lord God Jehovah. He says, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord, that is Jehovah, gives them over to me, I will be your head. Verse 10, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. Verse 7 or verse 11. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and, and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So, in other words, he came back to the land. He said, We're going to restate this again. We're going to do this in Mizpah before the Lord. We're, we're going to make a, a, a vow with one another, a covenant with one another. And I'm dependent on the Lord. I'm not trusting you, I'm trusting the Lord God. You could probably see where he was a little bit, eh, I don't really know if I trust these guys. These are the guys that ran me out on a rail. I'm not sure that I trust these guys, but I trust the Lord. So if you'll make that vow to the Lord, because I'm, I have confidence in him, which leads us really to our next point, right? Uh, when we risk it all by faith, not only do we have a childlike steps of obedience, but we stand strong in the character of God. When we risk it all, when we're living by faith and a, a desire to be well-pleasing to the Lord, we stand strong in the character of God. And, and when we read this text, what we understand is that Jephthah knew the history of Israel. He, he understood, he was fully aware of God's protection. He was fully aware of God's provision to bring them into this land. And so he was standing strong, not in his ability as a mighty warrior, because he knew he could not do that. But he was trusting the faithfulness of God. He took God at his word. And when we look at the map, let me throw just another map up. This is what the, the nation now looked like under, uh, during the period of the judges. They were losing ground, right? They were giving over ground because they were rebelling against God. And, and so now you had the Ammonites, right? Uh, you can see where Ammon is right there. They were trying to press in, and they wanted to take all that land back between those two rivers. Their southern border is the Arnon River. The northern border, border is the uh, Jakar. 
And so they wanted to take all that land back that they said, oh, hey, you took that from us. And they wanted to take it all the way back to the Jordan, all the way to the West. So I love what he does because now he just gives them a history lesson. And so he's dealing with the king of Ammon, and he simply says, beginning in verse 21, and the Lord, Jehovah, the God of Israel, gave Sihon, this takes us back, actually, Rahab was claiming this promise. She knew what God had done. We looked at that last week. He gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites, that was the people that were uh, sort of dwelling in that land, had sort of hoodwinked all that stuff, and so uh, who had inhabited that country, verse 22, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So from north to south, from west to east, uh, so then the Lord gave them that land and he dispossessed the Amorites. And then he says, and are you to take possession of them? In other words, God gave us this land, and we'll see in a minute, like over 300 years ago, and now you think you are entitled to that land. And so he says that all that the Lord our God will hold, well, let me back up, verse uh, 24. Will you not possess what Shemosh your God gives you to possess? And all that the Lord Jehovah our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess? In other words, he's kind of saying, hey, look, you have a God. His name is Shemosh. Why don't you take what, what Shemosh gives you and we'll take what Lord God Jehovah gives us? Uh, this is, this is pre-battle stuff. The battle hadn't even taken place. He's just simply trying to negotiate with him to go, look, man, you're, you're picking the wrong fight right here. And he's standing strong in the character of God. He's saying, look, um, verse 25, now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor? I like to say Zipper because it's just more fun. The king of Moab, right, which was to the southern side right there. Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aror, which is the little town right there by the river, and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me no wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So he basically picked this fight. And it's like, look, man, I just want you to understand, you're not picking a fight with me. You're picking a fight with God. And I'm standing strong in the character of God for who he is. And if you want to go there, that's your choice. But we have to stand strong. By faith, we stand strong in the character of God. And when we risk it all by faith, uh, not only do we stand strong in the character of God, but we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is by faith that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the things that we are incapable of doing. And in verse 29 of Judges 11, it simply says, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. This is unique in the Old Testament. There are several uh, situations where we see the Spirit of God coming upon someone because God's relationship with his nation was different, with his people. And we know that the Holy Spirit came in the book of Acts when the New Testament church was born after Jesus, right? And so now we live with the presence of the Holy Spirit and we have a choice every moment. Ephesians 5.18, we're commanded to be 
filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That word literally means to be controlled and empowered. So every moment of my life, if I'm going to walk by faith, it's a choice to be controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Here, Jephthah uh, had something that was unique. The Spirit of God came upon him to give him a victory by faith. The fourth thing, right, not only are we empowered by the Holy Spirit, but when we risk it all by faith, we choose our battles carefully that impact the kingdom of God. And I have to say, choose our battles carefully that impact the kingdom of God because I'm afraid that in so many ways we pick battles that have nothing to do with the kingdom. We fight battles of the flesh, we fight battles of politics, we fight battles of, of social concerns, and I believe in that process. Yes, we live in a very shifting culture, but here's what I believe. I, I believe in so many ways our culture has shifted, and it's not that they don't believe what we believe, but they're, they're rebelling against how we behave. See, we can hold strong biblical convictions over certain things that, that are for the kingdom of God, but, but in so many ways, it's not that people are rejecting what we believe, they're rejecting how we behave because we're not walking in obedience to Christ. We're not walking filled with the Holy Spirit. We're picking battles that are not kingdom battles. We're not fighting uh, over the things of God, His holiness and His righteousness. And what has happened, and I want to be really careful here, what has happened is we've turned our mission field into a battlefield. And instead of walking out into our culture that is broken and lost and dying and separated from the love and grace of Jesus, we look at every person in our culture apart from Jesus as our enemy instead of looking at them as a missionary to look in their eyes and realize this person whose face that I'm looking in, these eyes that I see, is someone that Jesus loves and he died for them. But we don't. We look at them and we go, you're my enemy. You're, you're not my enemy. You are, you're my mission field. And we pick battles that are not kingdom battles. So in verse 32 and 33, we see this great victory. We see this great victory, but, but I can't help but, but look at this story and realize that, man, we're, we're missing something. And I think of the great preacher D.L. Moody who, who once said, out of a hundred men, one will read the Bible. Out of a hundred men, one will read the Bible. The other 99 will read men. See, see, we expect to, to step out into a lost and dying world, and we expect people to grab God's truth and just embrace it and read it. They won't. They don't. But what are they doing? They're looking at you and me, and they're reading us because we claim to have a relationship with this God of love and grace and mercy. And if we truly believe what the Bible says, we realize these people, apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, are doomed for an eternity separated from God. But instead, we pick battles. They're not kingdom battles. I have to be really careful in my life and my ministry because I've, like Jephthah, I, I've blown it. I've chosen to die on hills that I look back and I go, that hill was not worth dying on. I severed relationships over things that I go, that was not worth it, and God, please forgive me. Forgive me for my ignorance. Forgive me for my, my uh, arrogance to think that somehow this is about me when it's not. It's all about you. So we see the victory. 
So Jephthah crossed, verse 32, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. You see, we can't leave it there. We can't leave it there because we don't live in Judges 11. We live in the 21st century. We live in a, in a world that is very different. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us. And as we step out by faith to risk it all and honor Jesus, we have to look at Ephesians chapter 6 and, and realize that we are fighting a battle that is different. And he simply says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is a spiritual battle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We fight spiritual battles for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. How are we walking with Jesus? How are we standing strong in his character? How are we trusting him and taking him at his word? As the band is coming, I just want to close with this thought because some of you, I want to invite you back. If you're peeking in online, maybe you're out there because you are right now, you're out in Tobe. Maybe you're in the room and, and you're sort of just distant and you're wondering, where do I fit? How does God use this? I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by individuals. I want to invite you back to be restored to right relationship with God and with his church. And I apologize on behalf of Jesus Christ and saints that love him dearly. We want to walk in fellowship with you, but we will point you to the Savior. We will point out sin, right? Why? Because we want to be well-pleasing to God, to walk by faith, to risk it all to walk in a way that is well-pleasing to him, to grow in maturity with one another, to be the people that God created us to be, not just to accept you for who you are, but to help you be the person that God created you to be. We can do that with love. We can do that with grace. For others, just as you walk in fellowship with God, what is he leading you to do? Because I, I firmly believe that every day of my life, God invites me to a new step of obedience. For some of you this morning, that may be a huge step. He may be calling you to do something that's really radical. For some of you, it might just be a small, simple step. I don't know what that is. But in just a moment, the band's going to play. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. And during that time, I invite you to remain seated if you want to do that. If you just want to spend a moment with the Lord and just press into your relationship with Him and say, God, what is it that you're calling me to do? By faith, to risk it all so that my life can be well-pleasing to you. Let's bow our heads in an attitude of prayer. Father, in this place, would you have your way with us? God, draw us close for that person that's 80 miles away in Tobe. Emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually, God, would you draw them back? Whether they're online, whether they're in this room, God, if they're distant from you, would you restore them? Lord, for those of us in this room that just need to know what is our next step as I walk by faith to risk it all, for your honor and for your glory, I want to lay aside my sin. I want to persevere. I want to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. I want to run my race and finish well. God, would you speak to our hearts in a unique way this morning in Jesus' name, amen.